Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter with host Brooke Benson. Over the next hour, you'll learn from experienced professionals the options you have to make smart decisions in your own divorce journey. Now, here is your host. Hi there. My name is Brooke Benson. Welcome to Plan for Divorce, your next chapter. I hope everyone listening had a great 4th of July. I saw a wedding planning magazine and realized people need the same kind of guide for getting unmarried. I do not advocate for divorce, and in fact, I don't even get involved in relationship issues at all. If you decide to end a relationship, or your partner does, I am here to help with sensible, practical, and often low-cost ways to prepare for the split. Only when you know what you want can you work towards your own best outcomes. And there are many professions with specialties in the area of divorce. This show is dedicated to hearing from them, compiling some of their best information and incorporating it into a workbook I've written by the same name. It is now available for download at planfordivorce.org. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Today, we are very fortunate to hear from two women with lots of experience on the topic of divorce. First, we have Bridget Potterton. Bridget has more than 20 years of experience in residential real estate serving the San Diego, California area, and she is one of a select group of realtors to have the designation CDRE which stands for Certified Divorce Real Estate Expert. She holds a master's in business entrepreneurship and is also a real estate divorce specialist. She is currently in the top 1% of agents in production in San Diego. Bridget, that's incredible. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Brooke, for having me. I really appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. So Bridget and I have become acquainted through a business referral network, and I'm always interested in talking to someone who deals with real estate, especially since I'm on the lending side of it. Um, but Bridget, for our listeners, can you talk just uh, briefly about what the CDRE does and how it's different from just a regular realtor? That's a great question. A certified divorce real estate expert uh, like myself is somebody who's been through extensive training in this space. The thing is, is that in this space, there really hasn't been a lot of great education for real estate professionals in the past. And so we've kind of been like the blind leading the blind, figuring it out as we go along. And the Certified Divorce Real Estate Expert Program was a, was a class I took about three and a half years ago, and it was a six-month program that took me through the process of learning the background of real estate divorce financing, um, how to take a listing properly, the right protocols when you have higher conflict versus lower conflict uh, situations, whether there's restraining orders or if you have parties that have uh, disappeared uh, there's a lot of different scenarios when dealing with divorce. And so it's important to be educated and to be prepared uh, for those kinds of things and how to work properly with the entire family law community, including their attorneys or their certified divorce uh, financial analysts, or like you, Brooke, the cert certified divorce lending professional. 
Great. I'm glad that you are explaining all those different roles, because I think there are people who can step in and assist in a situation where there's a divorce. And a lot of us who've been through the process are not necessarily aware that this help exists. Um, Have you personally experienced divorce or how did you get involved in uh, this kind of work? I have never been through a divorce personally, and uh, I had my first divorce escrow was about uh, maybe 16, 17 years ago. I was pretty early in my career and my newlywed clients were fell in love with a condo in La Jolla, California. And it turned out that the couple that was selling was going through a very high conflict divorce after 30 years. Um, at the time, the listing agent um, broke all sorts of protocols that I now understand were not a great thing to do. Oh no. She, she was describing everything that she should have, should not have been. There was disclosure on things that should not have been. There's no reason that I should have ever known all of these background things. Uh, But the reality was back then there was no great education. So I can't falter for it. We were just doing the best we could. And it got to be so stressful that there were so many delays because what, what one party wanted, if they agreed to it, the other party refused. And the the listing agent had um, no way of kind of putting them together. And it got to the point where my newlywed happy clients who were living in a tiny little studio apartment told me, Bridget, if you don't get us this house soon, we're going to get divorced too. And I thought to myself, you know what? know that I ever want to do another divorce escrow again. And clearly the joke's on me because fast forward about another uh, probably four or five years. And one of my past clients was a mediator who would do divorces sometimes. And she referred me to several other mediators. And so I kind of eased my way, way in with some lower conflict ones. And then over time started working with higher conflict divorces. And, and now I'm I'm experienced in in the lowest of the low conflict, all the way up to the very high conflict. And um, certainly there's a lot of education out there now, or or at least there's more than there was back then. Uh, And I'm certainly grateful for it. And I think that as a real estate community, it's very important for us to do better and to make sure that we are following both family laws and real estate laws. And sometimes those two do not mix well. And so it's a matter of figuring out how do we make this work? That is so true. And I know as the CDLP, I tell my clients a lot of the time, mortgage life and family life don't always line up the way they should. So that's a really important point that to understand family law and mortgage law and real estate law, I mean, you really are wearing quite a few hats in your in your role. As are you. I mean, for example, when you have a client that maybe they they go to court to fight over keeping the house, right? That's where you come in and and maybe they they have fought over it for a few months only to find out after speaking with a CDLP like yourself, oh, actually, I, I can't qualify after all this time. I just spent all this time, you know, wasting money by, by attorney charges by the hour. And now I can't even do what I wanted to do. Um, and so it's critical for them to talk to somebody like you early on in the process so that they can figure out whether that's even in the realm of possibilities. 
Well, and it's interesting that you mentioned kind of your history in real estate because I've been in lending for a long time. And when I first was lending, the company I worked for, and I think that was kind of the prevailing attitude at the time was wait until the divorce is over and then step in and offer to help. And so I was trained that way for years and years. Um, now in this role, I realize that's not a good idea. And and number one, you know, people can't afford to wait. They don't want to have to go, you know, rent something and live there and then come back and try to refinance the house. My role is to tell the family lawyer and the client, yes, this is a slam dunk. You qualify, no problem. Or if that's not the case, help kind of shape the settlement in a way that the person can qualify, whether that is including, you know, child support or um, how the debt gets divided up between the parties and the divorce. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because my industry and yours are very similar in the sense that we've taken notice of the fact that families don't always stay together. And when they don't, they really need as much or more assistance in the breakup process. So that was, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Um, when you, when someone approaches you to list their home and you know, it's a divorce situation, or maybe I guess probably typically your client comes maybe through the mediator or through the family lawyer, what are some of the problems that you sort of anticipate right off the bat that would be different from accepting just a regular for sale listing? That's a great question. There's a lot of different things that that can come up in these that we don't typically deal with in traditional real estate. One of the common ones can be, for example, if one of the parties is still living in the property and maybe the other party has already moved out and there are maybe some deferred maintenance items, there are oftentimes disagreements over who should cover what? Because, you know, so-and-so is still living in the property, so they must have broken item A. Or um, so-and-so left the house and never did anything, and now I'm left cleaning up the mess. That's a really common challenge that comes up of, okay, you know, and, and as a real estate broker, you know, my job is to try to get clients top dollar for their home. So I can give suggestions on things that can be done or should be done prior. But for some of them, that's not always the best scenario. Sometimes it's better just to get a clean break and, and sell as is. I mean, it, it depends on a lot of different factors as to what the parties agree to, but that can be one piece. Um, the other piece can be, let's say, if if one party or both parties are living in the property, sometimes the distribution of, of their personal property can come up. Att depending on the attorney, they don't necessarily always address it in the court orders or in the marital settlement agreements. And so um, depending on what they agree on, there, there can be that. Uh, going on. And that can sometimes, if you're not careful, can cause delays and escrow or things like that. A lot here in California, the way our purchase contract is written is we are to deliver the property free and clear at close of escrow, meaning no personal property can be left in the home unless the buyers have agreed to take that. So you can see how that could be a, a problem if we get to the end and they're still arguing over 
pieces of furniture or some personal belongings over who gets what. Or even things like non-realty items. I know yes. in my case, um, when I got divorced, the the broker gave each of us the list of what we could say or you know not conveying with the property. And I had two chandeliers I felt very attached to and listed them. And in my case, my ex-husband didn't get around to filling his out, but the way the settlement went, he paid me my equity out of it. And then he sold the house individually and he promised those chandeliers to the buyer and it put the realtor in, I mean, and he's, he's a professional, but it put him in the uncomfortable situation of having to go in and say, Brooke listed those from the very beginning and they are not conveying with the property. So I imagine things like that would come up aside from the personal property, but you really do have to do a thorough interview with each party at the time of listing. Is that correct? Especially if they're with one party or both are going to be living there during the sale of the house. Um also, like it is sometimes if it's a, a lower conflict, but it could also be higher. Maybe they still both live in the property. Um, showings can sometimes be difficult. You have to remember, oftentimes in these scenarios, when when people are mad about something, that in my experience is that that's rarely the actual thing that they are mad about. There is something else deeper going on in the background, and so. If I have a client that is um, not wanting to do showings, it's not really about that showing being an inconvenient time and them rejecting all the showings. It's it's about something else. It's about uh, custody battle. It's about um, feeling loss of control, feeling powerless. Feel, you know, there's there's a lot deeper things, and so I think it's important when you're working this space to really meet people where they're at. And for for me, it was a little bit about letting go of my ego and saying and realizing this is not about me. This is not about them happy or or mad at me. It has nothing to do with me. And my sole job is to get them through one of the most difficult parts of their divorce and help them move on. That is my job. That is right. my job. Yeah, I I appreciate that. And I imagine our listeners really would as well. In your training for specifically working with divorcing couples, did you take uh, training about high conflict individuals or high conflict situations? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, I think that one of the biggest challenges with high conflict situations is to keep your emotions between the line. And again, back to my last comment, it's not about, it's not about me. And so there is a fabulous book out there. Um, I'm not sure if you've read it. It's by an author named Bill Eddy. And he is actually the founder of the High Conflict Institute. He is kind of a celebrity, if you will. In I the, didn't even the know there was one. That's yes, he, he's actually written several and it's called Biff, B-I-F-F. If you are an attorney out there or if you are going through a divorce um, and you find that the party you're working with or or the opposing party is is difficult, this book is fabulous. Even if you're not going through a divorce, I've used it on family members and it works great. It's brief, informative, friendly, factual, and it's how to respond to high conflict situations without escalating them. It's fabulous. I'm so glad to know that because 
I mean, that was kind of a leading question. I know you take training in the high conflict individual because I did as the CDLP. And I have actually started using that vocabulary um, when I have a client call me. And, you know, typically the family lawyer just gives the client my name and number. So they call me knowing what I do, but not knowing, you know, that much about what I do. Mm-hmm. And I will typically say, you know, so what's going on? And typically the response is just, you know, just all this stuff about, well, I mean, you know, this has happened and you wouldn't believe how she acted and, you know, all this story. And, and I'm okay with that. I mean, I just let that person talk and I I do often pick up helpful information from the story, but then, you know, the whole sort of catalyst for this show and for the workbook is, you know, my follow-up question. So what's your plan? And people find, you know, they don't have a plan, but, The reason that I mention, you know, the way I kind of run my intake is that now that I know about the high conflict individual, and now that I know I was married to a high conflict individual, I think it's very comforting for our clients to understand that we're familiar with this. I mean, there are some similar patterns of behavior and you and I both know when someone is breaking up a family, experiencing a divorce, there are so many emotions that are just banging all around and it's hard to know who to trust. I have felt like my clients benefit from understanding that we are trained to deal with someone who might be undermining or might be running a side agenda, or as you pointed out, might be mad about something that doesn't really have anything to do with showing the house. I'm sure you've had some experience with that. Can you can you share any anecdotes? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think one of the things that's different from a traditional broker or realtor to a CDRE is we are trained to be third-party um, neutrals. So I have to treat both parties equally. It doesn't it doesn't matter if one person is extremely rude to me and the other one is extremely nice to me. That's irrelevant. I am a third party neutral and I've got to help for the the good of the estate. That's my job. And I think that sometimes um you know depending on who you're dealing with it's it's not necessarily always the the high conflict in, individuals. Sometimes they're not the most Uh, challenging. Sometimes one of the biggest challenges that we find is you have a a lot of people when they're in a a high stress situation like a divorce, they're in flight or fight mode. Okay. And the flight oftentimes can start by them freezing and they don't want to sign the the paperwork. They don't want to do the showings. They don't want to answer the calls or the emails or the, or the texts. Um, That is certainly a challenge. And I can certainly appreciate somebody being overwhelmed emotionally because this process is draining, regardless of which approach you take. But at the same time, it's likely not going to help your situation if you choose to freeze. You will have to deal with it, and it's likely going to cost you more money the the longer that you wait. Um, I think that in family law, Things do not move quickly. You and I are used to, in a real estate world, we have timeframes. We've got to get contingencies removed. You've got to get the appraisal ordered. There's a lot that needs to be done in a quick amount of time. And so, but family law doesn't work that way. Sometimes 
I'll have an attorney tell me, oh yeah, I just got you assigned for a case and I won't hear about it from the attorney for a year because there's so much going on in that background. And so as I often result, have that experience as well. And I do tell clients, you know, I'm on your time frame. I'll hurry up and try to get a scenario to you, but I understand that the courts don't run on your agenda or my agenda. So thank you for, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but thank you for bringing that up. Well, and as a, as a certified divorce lending professional, I imagine that you probably had clients that you were working with last year who were in the process pause because of things going on in the family law courts uh, or in their mediation and all of a sudden come back to you and guess what? Rates have gone up significantly and they may be either talking to you about a completely different mortgage amount or not being able to qualify at all. I mean, I know one of the listings I took earlier this year, it was that exact scenario. Last year, they agreed to do a buyout and um guess what? November came around and they couldn't do it anymore. And so they, they had to put it on the market. I have had that experience and it's heartbreaking because I had a couple, he was actually my client in that, in that situation, but he decided to kind of wait and they were going to have, they did have some side issues, but he came back, um, gosh, I can't remember how much time elapsed and basically just said, okay, we're ready to go ahead and get this done. And I said, well, you know, because I had followed up with him, but but because people are in conflict and they are mm-hmm. so emotional, um, I imagine like you, I mean, I don't want to prod and I, I definitely remind people that I understand that things don't always move the way they're supposed to, but it, it's tough when market conditions change and things are not you know, they're just not viable anymore. So that's, that's an excellent point that you bring up. And, and as you noted, we're trained to anticipate those situations and at least be able to explain that, you know, the deal I'm offering you right now might be different by the time you're finished with this. And it's an important, that's a very important point. Um, do you often have couples who list their home and disagree on what they think it's worth? Absolutely. Uh, I would say more often than not, they disagree. And um, for the ones that are in court orders, it, it also depends on how the attorney has written up the court order, whether if it's the parties are to decide, or sometimes they'll put in there that if if the parties cannot decide on the price, then the price is to be determined based on uh, my recommendations, and they'll put you know they'll put that in there. So it it kind of depends on the scenario. Oftentimes, my experience has been that one party is likely more ready to sell than the other. And so the party that um, may not be ready might um, gives, give us sort of a, a little bit more of a, of a challenge, not because they don't necessarily agree, but because they they aren't ready to go. They're not ready, especially this is not always the in-spouse or this, this party living in the property, but sometimes it can be. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of emotions when you buy a house, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And you're proud of yourself and it's something you did maybe together. And if you have kids, you're raising your kids in this home now, and you plan on staying there till they graduate and all those things. And then, you know, this, this divorce comes along and it completely derails your plans. 
of course, working with uh, you, know, you, Brooke, hopefully then they would be able to keep the home. But sometimes they are not able to keep the home and then you're able to help them qualify for something smaller and to be able, you know, to be able to move that route. But it is certainly challenging. And unfortunately, sometimes I'm the bearer of bad news because in, in your area, as in mine, prices have gone up significantly the last few years. So if you yes. bought your home 10 years ago, let's say your mortgage is $2,000 a month. And now guess what? To redo it, or, you know, depending on rates or whatever, um, it could be significantly higher. And let's say you decide, okay, I'll just go rent for a year. Well, guess what? To rent a house out here, you're looking at probably 3,500 or more here in San right. Diego. So right. you have to pay more to rent a house than the one, you know, that's a hard, that's a hard pill to swallow. It is. I am, I brought up that question specifically because one of the things that a CDLP can do um, if the situation requires it is a buyout of equity to the departing spouse. And so I have noticed that typically the departing spouse sees a higher value in the home because they're going to base their share of equity on that. And the person keeping the house says, well, you know, we have drainage problems and we have this and we have that, and it's not really worth that much. And so do you, when you are called to be the one to make the recommendation on the pricing, is there any kind of, um, uh, the only word I can think of is really blowback from either of the parties. I mean, is that a contentious time where you say, look, I've taken into consideration all the comparable information and this is what I think you should list at? Certainly that is, that is a challenge. Uh, I had one, I think it was last year where uh, they were getting advice from a family member who was a realtor from out of state who had never <laughs> been to the property, um, wasn't aware of the location of the property. They probably just saw the word San Diego and thought, you know, automatic million dollars. Right. Uh, and so sometimes that can be a little bit challenging uh, to have an outside uh party who is not familiar with a local area. I mean, I think it is important to work with a, a local realtor who specializes in your city or in your county um, and not necessarily somebody who's, you know, four or five hours away, uh, or in this case, uh, across the country. Right. So I, I think that it, it is important to really get local market knowledge of your area and, and to go through the comparables with, with, with the certified divorce real estate expert to talk each one through. Um, and, and genuinely, I think that there is some truth to that. Yes. Your, your plumbing is old here. We have a lot of homes with cast iron from the fifties and sixties. All those things are true, but in a reasonable market, what would a buyer likely pay for it? And, and the other option of course, is to go out and, and pay an appraiser to do a, uh, an appraisal or, Hire, you know, a, a realtor to do a fair market valuation. Uh, attorneys do bring me on occasion into that, but um, unfortunately, those those are only good for a short period of time. So if you have a court date coming up, but then you're not actually going to sell it or do a buyout for six months, it's not really valid. You know, it's valid for a very short period of time. So it's important to remember when you're spending money on an appraisal or fair market value. If you're not ready to go right after that, you're probably going to have to do another one later. Yes. And I feel like it's worth it to remind people as well that 
I, as the lender, I cannot accept an appraisal I didn't order. So if someone is planning to sell the house and they order an appraisal and that, you know, that value comes in and then they change their minds and one of the parties is going to keep it. And then they're upset when I can't accept their appraisal. But as you well know, it's, it's a federal law. I mean, I, I can't. So I do remind my family lawyers that, you know, if you order an appraisal, the 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 one the lender orders is the only one that can be used. Um, your clients are so lucky to have you. You have brought up several points that are critically important, and you know people just going about their business, not not concerned with a divorce, just don't really have any reason to think of some of these things. Um, we are running out of time, but before we go, I would like to ask you, are you ever required to testify in a case or um, provide information to a court, a family court? And if so, what does that look like? Great question. Yes, I have been uh, trained to become a certified uh, to, to testify if I need um, it could be on a couple different scenarios. Sometimes it might be based on fair market value. Oftentimes they'll use an appraiser for that has been my experience. Sometimes they'll a, an attorney will ask me to testify based on a transaction that has already closed and maybe they feel like um, it, the property didn't, didn't sell for as much as it should have because one party refused to upgrade. Uh, sometimes they ask me to testify based on value of a property that they are interested in having me uh, sell potentially. And sometimes it's one where I have nothing to do with the property, but they need some some background um, expert knowledge from real estate. So there's several different ways where they would bring me in and, and what the knowledge is. And, um, you know, I'm always happy to help the family law community when whenever they need. And is that generally um, your you're contacted by the attorney to say the court would like to hear from you? Yes. Oftentimes they'll contact me way in advance. Although my, my experience here in San Diego, I'm not quite sure how it is in Texas right now, but uh, I've noticed a lot of our cases since COVID have really been trying hard to settle out of court. So oftentimes they'll hire me and then they won't end up meeting me. Uh, that that's just been my personal experience. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how it is in your neck of the woods. Well, I mean, we have, <laughs> We have very similar situations, I think, most of the time. So great information. Bridget, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you are doing for the family law community, Brooke. Well, I really enjoy it. And especially here in Texas, I've become very involved with family lawyers and the different associations. And it's been a, a real blessing in my life to get to know some of these people. I think by and large, family lawyers truly do have their their clients' best interest at heart and, and they're receptive to our information. Do you agree that attorneys Absolutely. are interested in hearing from someone like a CDRE? Absolutely. Good. Well, thank you very much. Again, that was Bridget Potterton. If you're in the San Diego area, you definitely want to check her out. She is a top 1% broker and also a CDRE and specialist in divorce real estate. My next guest today is going to give us a little bit more information about high conflict situations. Any divorces difficult and painful, 
no matter how amicable it might be, um, especially if there are children involved who are looking at, you know, maybe having to change not only where they live, but to some degree, their lifestyle going back and forth between two parents and, you know, maybe even facing a move to a different place. Um, Whitney Ramirez is here with me in the studio today. She is a financial professional who has championed entrepreneurship and business incubation in public schools. During her career, she's also originated residential mortgages. That's just sort of coincidental to having Bridget on the show. She has developed commercial properties, and she has worked in business development. She has agreed to share a few insights on divorcing a high-conflict individual and her experiences co-parenting in the aftermath of that. Her three boys are now young adults. One of them is a college graduate, and the others will be in college this fall. Her middle son has overcome serious medical issues and now thrives in school and with his employment and volunteers as a community leader often. Whitney is a native of Dallas, and she graduated from the University of Texas She currently counsels women in her community through separation, divorce, and co-parenting. Whitney, it is great to have you here today. Thank you so much, Brooke. It's good to see you, and thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Can you give our listeners an overview of your divorce timeline? Sure. Um, You know, obviously every divorce is different, but of course they're all stressful. You're overwhelmed. You're sad. You're feeling fragile and you're really not yet in divorce mode. It's so new to you. You're still kind of in shock. Um, I also think, you know, a lot of women, when they start divorce, they start out kind of playing nice, like they always do accommodating in hopes that it will facilitate a quick non-contentious divorce or uncontentious divorce. Um, I certainly tried that approach early on. Um, but it was kind of like bringing in a knife to a gunfight, you know, it, I quickly realized you know, it, that just isn't going to work. doesn't matter how I approach it. Um, I would expect, and I don't know, um, Bridget probably knows, but a, a typical divorce might take a year, year and a half. Um, and of course it, it might even go quicker if there aren't children involved or if it's a couple that has an accumulated mutual assets together. And so it might be a much easier, you know, uh, divorce. Um, uh, You know, my divorce was long (laughs) Um, by most standards um, from what I heard after the fact from a lot of top professionals said it was one of the worst they had ever seen down at the courthouse and and I pretty much had an A team, you know, for my divorce. Um, you know, my ex's strategy, he's he's got a family of attorneys, you know, so he's well versed and he's a smart guy. But you know, his and a lot of people, they have strategies. I don't. My mind doesn't work that way. But his strategy was kind of delay, 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 right? And Time is not your friend in a divorce. That is one thing that is true. Um, and Bridget mentioned that is time, time is not your friend dealing with a real estate it, it transaction kills deals. because it, everything changes. It, it kills deals and it allows for more problems. It gives them time to file crazy motions. 
you have to be your own advocate and you have to push, push, push it. Time is not your friend, money, exhaustion for your sanity, for all these reasons, your kids, um, it, 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 but mine was slow, um, you know, for freezing to, you know, turnover discovery, pay what he's supposed to pay monthly, you know, he motions were filed weekly by him. So, you know, you're kind of responding to all this, um, you know, he's, you know, fighting everything. Right. Um, when really, I think we probably could have looked or gone to Starbucks and had a, a, a napkin and divided the assets, done the children 50-50 and said, I wish you the best. I mean, it, it was that easy, right? But we know, I mean- It's not the, it's not the, it's rare. Right? right. It's very, I think it's very rare for a couple to sit down and just say, okay, you take this and I take this. And, you know, particularly when there are children involved. So if it, let's just say that a typical divorce is, you know, a year to a year and a half overall, what was the time frame for you? Um, it was, um, you know, it, it was long. Um uh, it, it drug out, you know, we had three mini mediations and none of those worked. Um, he, you know, he would walk out within an hour or we would get to the end of the full day of mediation. And, you know, he would say, you know, unless you agree to this last item, everything else is null and void kind of, I think what they call global mediation. So we'd be back to square one. So after the third one and they're expensive and stressful and you prepare and you're excited that it might get done. Um, you know, I had tried to convince my attorney, we go to court. It was the last thing I wanted, but I have no faith that this is going to, this process is going to work. Okay. And let me stop you there because that's actually a point that, um, I think, I don't know, maybe family lawyers do talk very frankly with their clients about this, but certainly in my own case, I had very strong, I received very strong messaging. You really should try to settle when Absolutely. you mediate for the first time. And the mediator's job is to get both parties to agree, which I think is counterintuitive in a divorce. You're not really wanting to compromise with the person who hurt you or, you know, did something terrible or whatever, but to actually have to find some middle ground and agree on so many different points. Um, I, I think mediation is tricky and oftentimes people don't realize that if you don't settle that day, the sky doesn't fall down. So your story is interesting to me because you went through not one and not two, but actually three different sessions without four. agreement. Okay. So four <laughs> sessions. So it's important for our listeners to know that while mediation may be the first thing suggested, and typically I believe it is, if you each have lawyers, if you're going kind of the traditional route to divorce, but mediation is not necessarily going to be the thing that works. And Whitney's case is, you know, an example of that and an important part of having her on the show. Um, one thing I wanted to ask her are what kind of resources she found available to her and how she utilized those as she went through her process uh, to final divorce. Sure. Um, 
you know, I've always been an avid researcher um, and there's a lot out there, um, a lot of information out there, probably even more now than when I was going through my divorce. Um, you know, this radio show, something like this wasn't there at that time. The workbook that you produced, Brooke, all those things are so helpful. You can't be too prepared because it's a whole nother world you're diving into just at the same time, you've got kids, you're doing a lot of different things and a lot of balls in the air. So um, I fortunately had a, a really good grasp of our finances and had done our family personal and business books um, throughout our marriage and, and handled you know our investment property. So I had a good handle on the documentation and that helps. I was quite organized. Um, but I, you know, ordered several books, read a lot of articles specifically about high conflict couples or high conflict individuals. You know, there's kind of a misconception and it was a piece of advice that I think it's really important. And I, I, I would have believed this too, before I went through it. And that is when you hear of two couples that are in a high conflict divorce, you frequently as an outsider, you say, my gosh, if they could just get it together, that's so sad. Both of them just need to bury the hatchet and get this done for the kids. And they, they kind of put the blame on both. And I was told by somebody that kind of deals with this, they said, that's not the case. Normally there is one high conflict individual. Um, they're not attracted to other high conflict individuals. They're attracted to somebody that's accommodating. And so that kind of took the pressure off of me. And because you kind of think, am I, I I'm always thinking, am I being unreasonable? No, I'm not. So, well, and that's something that, that Bridget discussed before you were on the show that, that we now have this vocabulary around what, you know, there are certain characteristics that are shared by high conflict individuals. I think it's in incredibly comforting to know that there are certain descriptors that work in these settings. And, you know, you may be married to someone like this, but also Bridget pointed out that sometimes the high conflict individual is not necessarily the one slowing the process down, they're just the one afraid to, you know, really pull the trigger. I think in your case, this was just somebody who was trying to muddy the water as much as possible and throw out as many distractions as, uh, you know, as, as he could during your process. You know, every, every divorce is different. Um, you know, I, I think that m mine was about, knowing that the delay hurt me, that added more stress and strife. And, and I think, you know, that, that was part of it kind of, you know, I had pulled back the curtain and so this is what you're going to get, you know, you asked for it, get ready because, you know, and you can, can't underestimate what is coming your way. I had no clue. Well, and I imagine in that situation, you're the person dealing with the children every sure. day and trying to keep everything level and calm and keep the kids in their routine. And so the adding those delays and adding the conflicts and agreeing to something and then, you know, disagreeing later, it, it kind of keeps you off balance, would you say? It does. It does. It just adds to it. And that's why, you know, you really have to not only do your research and knowledge is power, you know, and one thing, a piece of advice, I have several, but one thing that I did 
fairly early on was, um, and, and I had known for quite some time, the personality type of my ex and had, had known what that was and had learned quite a bit about it, but I ordered more books and a friend had referred a life coach as well that specialized in that personality type. And he was invaluable. And so as I read and learned, I was able to see what I was going through and his behavior and his reaction towards me or an attorney that, you know, their attorneys can't control him, but, but that it was clinical, not personal. It was clinical. And that, that really took, I, I felt no pain. This is, he's hardwired this way. He hope he might do better with someone else. This just, this is not, doesn't work for me. <laughs> that is such a great point. And also such a catalyst for me wanting to start a show like this, because I hope that anyone listening who is confused by the behavior of their partner and maybe sees, okay, this person could be, you know, kind of thrive on conflict, maybe more so than I do. As Whitney just pointed out, this is clinical. I mean, there's research done, there's data published. Um, Psychology Today has articles about, you know, people who tend to thrive on conflict. I personally was not aware of that. I mean, I I never thought about it, I guess, that way in the sense that if I said, you know, my husband just really seems to thrive on conflict, I didn't think that people would understand what I was trying to say the way that he, he, I felt like he actually kind of took pleasure in undermining me and took pleasure in reporting wrong data and things where I would have an emotional reaction. Well, wait, that's not true. Well, wait, you know, rather than just sort of focusing on the fact that this is kind of a set of behaviors and some people have them and some people don't. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, You know, three more things that I did that I guess could be considered resources. Well, they they are, I would say. I just um, asked for referrals from anyone that I trusted and um, respected friends, attorney friends, um, therapists, friends who had already gone through divorce or had gone through a divorce and ask for, you know, we're just referrals, whether that be a therapist or, um, you know, anything, other attorneys, what their personalities type was like. I also, from the beginning, created a pretty organized system to keep all my documents and my research and everything that I'd written down. I mean, that's just kind of the way I'm hardwired anyway, but just so that it was easily accessible. And then I also... Um, kind of journaled at one point, you know, after we were separated at this point, but just wrote down all of the things that had transpired in our marriage over the years. And I didn't know that they would ever be relevant or not. But I thought, you know, while I'm going through all this is going through my mind, if I'm ever asked, at least I'll have this at the ready. I don't know if they'll be important, but they might be. So that's a very important point. And I also did something similar. Um, I actually made a three ring binder of kind of all the important things for the attorney or for a counselor to know about my children and to know about, 
you know, the history of the marriage, important dates, important events, things like that, that had happened. So I think you're bringing up something that is um, vitally important to anyone, especially if there are children involved to document um, situations. And, and we know from hearing in prior shows that there is now technology available that makes this easier. Uh, both Whitney and I went through our processes where it was, you know, taking pen to paper and getting some dividers and, you know, making a, a notebook for our, our, our providers to have everything kind of at, at their fingertips. Um, Whitney, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about your medically challenged kiddo and maybe some conflict that you had with the other parent around Jake's treatment. Sure. Um, you know, um, obviously, like everything else, it really depends on your child's diagnosis and the seriousness of their issues. Um, but it was well known that my middle son, Jake, um, would always need some type of daily assistance. And he's matured and changed so much. I mean, he's had lots of different therapies, etc. Um, but we knew fairly early on that it was most likely that he would not be able to drive and, you know, could possibly live in a group home or would live in the back of a casita, would be, be able to have a job. We, you just don't know what we don't know, but we had, he had every sort of doctor and counselor and therapist, um, you know, OT, all of it. So, um, but we, we knew that it would be unlikely for him to live an independent life. Um, you know, um, even though today he's 21 and just graduated college and he has a full-time job and he's the coolest, smartest, happiest kid I know. Um, but it is adds a whole nother dimension to divorce with a special need child. So I had to educate myself and I kind of did it the same way about the divorce. And that was, um, the internet has great resources. There are white pages. There's just there's lots of research on special needs divorce, learning about special needs trust, learning about all the factors that you would want to include in a decree in certain events that you might not foresee happening. Um, so I ordered books on a special needs trust and read that just to understand the basic. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, I knew that Jake would not go to college like his other brothers and start his own life. And that might also mean that he would, you have to imagine, live with one of us or live with a group home. There are expenses to all of this. So, um, you know, and and also, you know, I, you kind of go through, I'm thinking of these books and what it would explain to you. You know, your child's needs change as well. Their level of assistance and what that cost is going to change. They might be this, you know, need X amount today, but in five years, if they need another heart surgery, it might be totally different. And so you have to kind of plan for that. And how do you accommodate that? I mean, when you're planning, for example, the divorce decree and you're going to actually be divorced from the other parent, what are, are there any sort of guidelines that you can use to operate within saying, you know, we know that this kiddo is going to have these challenges going forward? 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, there are specialists and my younger son, Henry wants to go to law school to do special needs trust and for special needs kids, which I love um, in that name. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yes, I mean, normally you would hope two parents, they both love their child. They want the best for him. They, we've, we've, you know, he, he, my ex knew to what his challenges were obviously. And, um, so you would bring in an attorney that's, you know, handle special needs trust. And there's lots of documents, decisions to be made, discussions to have, um, that need to be resolved and then also need to be included in the decree at the time of the, the divorce. Um, you know, we also hired a life, I think it's called a life actuary and it's kind of an, an accountant, so to speak. And they look at your child's medical issues, their diagnosis, all the expected expenses attributed with it over the next so many years, um, the cost of living, et cetera. Um, and then they put a dollar amount on that. And then you want to make sure that there's enough life insurance to cover that in the event that one of the spouses would die. Right. So, and with a special needs trust, as I learned, you know, th there's a lot to it, but you want to make sure all the money goes into the special needs trust, because if your child does qualify for social security benefits, they cannot have any assets in their name, like more than I think like 1400. So if you had a relative or a parent that was going to give them inheritance, it would have to be go in designated to the special needs trust. If it was given to him, that can negate his benefits. So there's, there's, I mean, I know very, I, I'm not an expert on the subject, but you would want to hire someone. I spoke to one and we hired for like 10,000 hired a life actuary, life actuary. Unfortunately, you know, my ex was unwilling to create a special needs trust um, or have uh, the, any of the attorneys, you know, draft any of the important papers to protect him. He just refused. So um, I was devastated, of course. Um, yeah, the silver lining is that the life insurance is still in place. And, um, you know, he he remarried and married someone younger and her family comes from means. They've been very good to my kids and they adore them like their own. And I firmly believe that if, if, if something would happen to either one of us and we would go before our children, that they would step in. Uh, I feel comfort in that and trust them in that. So that, that allays a lot of my fears. That's wonderful. And I realize, you know, as I listen to you talk about this, we really could do a whole show talking specifically about the, the aspects of divorce that are complicated by a child. I mean, any divorce with children you're really looking at a snapshot in time and trying to predict the future. We all know that kids are unpredictable and with medical issues thrown in, it just, you know, adds that extra dimension. So unfortunately we are running out of time. Um, I so very much appreciate you being here. I know these are, these are hard topics to discuss for anyone, but I hope you'll consider coming back on the show at I'm, some point. I would love to. Thank you for, for having me, Brooke. And if I can't, I want to refer a name of a book. If someone believes that they might be dealing with a high conflict individual, this is kind of known as the Bible. And most most therapists will recommend this as well, but it's called the wizard of Oz and other narcissists. And so I would recommend starting out with that and see how you do.
That sounds great. Whitney, thank you so much for your insight and and just for your willingness to talk about this. It's it's tough, but people need to know that others have been through this. Um, I'm just appreciate, very much appreciate you being here. Tune in next week. We'll be talking about silver divorce, a different topic um, under this umbrella and a very, very salient point right now. Lots of people going through divorce over age 60. This is Brooke Benson. And until next week, please have a great week and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Plan for Divorce, Your Next Chapter with host Brooke Benson. We hope today's episode has given you a new perspective on divorce and food for thought as you make some important decisions. Until we talk again, hang in there. You are not alone.